Welcome to Get Your Head Back in the Game. This is a podcast about the amazing human spirit to overcome setbacks and stories to inspire you to get your head back in the game. My name is Melissa Ross. I am a mother, a wife, a sibling, a former professional cyclist, a cycling coach, and a serial entrepreneur. I am a traumatic brain injury warrior. I have lost everything and have fought my way back step by step. And I invite you to do the same. So get ready to join me for this wild ride. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Get Your Head Back in the Game. My name is Melissa Ross. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Tridia Finley. She is the founder of San Antonio's Elite Performance Counseling. As a licensed professional counselor, supervisor in Texas, she's a national certified counselor and adjunct professor at local universities. She also holds over a decade of experience in teaching her clients how to transform anxiety stemming from traumatic experiences into energy for success. So Dr. Tridia, I'm so excited to have you on my podcast today. Hey, I'm excited too. (laughs) Um, I was hoping you could talk to us and educate us a little bit about trauma and, you know, the many forms in which it might stem from and some of the things that you've found um, that can help people in dealing with it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for inviting me today. So one of the things I like to do is to make sure the audience, um, you know, our audience is on the same page with how we're defining or talking about these terms. So I like to start with some real basic definitions that are helpful to discuss some very intricate and complicated issues. And the focus of your podcast today is Trauma, and that word gets thrown around a lot. Um, Not that that's a bad thing, but there's a big difference between, you know, a clinical definition of trauma versus kind of the masses definition of trauma. So let's just make sure everyone's on the same page. Yeah, Um, I've got this definition from one of the leading experts in trauma by the name of Dr. Peter Levine. And um, if anyone wants to get more information and, and more detail about trauma. He's a very, very great um, um, expert and and he's a great place to start. He's written lots of books on trauma and he's done a ton, a ton of research. So the way he generalizes trauma is to kind of bracket it in as the emotional and psychological reaction to a negative event. But more specifically, Dr. Levine also extends that and brings in the body and says that trauma is experiencing fear in the face of helplessness. So fear plus helplessness equals trauma. Mm. And I really like Dr. Levine's focus on the somatic experience of trauma because people forget that we experience the world through our five senses first. So we we see, we taste, we touch, we hear, we smell. And then we have an interpretation of the stimulus. So what is 
an event that seems trauma traumatic and that feeling of helpless helplessness can be very specific to the individual so what you experience as trauma melissa might be very different from me right but that but that so that interpretation is pieces is definitely important however what ends up happening during traumatic experiences often is like that sense of helplessness where we can't do anything and so time and space slows down our language shuts off and we go into our bodies because we're in survival mode you know and um so then it becomes a very felt sense of the fear and the helplessness versus a thought or a cognition about feeling the fear or helplessness. And so we um, we have all these bodily sensations. And when it's all done, we're trying to make sense of it in our brains and put like things in line and we can't remember things are fuzzy. And, and, and then these feelings stay with us. So with Dr. Levine's focus on somatics, he tries to get the person to get to a place where they can speak about the traumatic event and then regulate their physical reaction to it, because that's what counts. For a long time, research focused on, well, just change your thought and you'll change your behavior and your your interpretation, or you'll change your interpretation, then change your behavior. But with trauma, it just wasn't working because trauma isn't, doesn't live in the mind per se. It lives in the body. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So in taking that kind of frame, um, I, that's how I work with my clients because many of my clients, like I'm sure your audience is, is, is consists of very high performers, very high achieving professionals and athletes. And we recognize that a lot of times it's mind over matter but then we have this analysis paralysis piece, especially when trauma is woven in, where our bodies just won't do what we want it to. And that's that's where I draw the bridge between the mind and getting the clients back in their bodies so they can work through whatever block is preventing them from succeeding, that anxiety um, and that struggle and that frustration. Right. Wow. Yeah. And I think, um, one time you had mentioned about how, um, dealing with that sort of anxiety or stress, you know, you could pinpoint like parts in your body where that you would feel that. Um, yeah. And you know, it, it depends though. It really depends. There's, there's kind of three basic or, or overarching, none of it's basic overarching types of trauma. There's developmental trauma that can happen in the first few years of life. Um, There's complex trauma that can consist of, um, again, family dynamics, or even um, like in most current research now, they're looking at kind of higher levels of trauma that come from societal, societal occurrences, like the school shootings yeah. Um, mass shootings, because that that is also a, a form of trauma, even though people weren't directly involved. Um, and then there's PTSD or P- PTS. Um, so there's that kind of trauma, too. And all of them kind of manifest in very different ways. But one thing, so being able to pinpoint it in the body can be difficult 
especially if the trauma was kind of directed at the body. So with sexual abuse or physical abuse versus like seeing body parts spread across the street or something like that. So it depends on the type of trauma the person experienced um, and whether or not they're going to be able to feel safe enough to go inside the body and work with it. Okay. Um, do you, um, want to talk about like how you work with people who are dealing with trauma in terms of like, maybe there's stages of how somebody has to deal with, um, unpeeling back those layers and overcoming it or how that, I'm sure it's very different from person to person. (laughs) Well, I do. It is very different in terms of the the way we work together to heal the trauma but the beginning of the way i work is relatively similar regardless of the client and so the first thing i do when i bring a client in is i get them to tell me their story about why they're in why they're seeking help and based on the way they tell their story i can kind of pick up on the theme so the theme of the their their life or what the problem is anyway. So it's kind of I kind of look at my clients like they're each a different movie. So you know you can watch a trailer because that's basically what I'm getting. I, I you can watch a trailer and you can tell if it's going to be a horror movie, if it's going to be a comedy, if it's going to be a suspense movie, right? Like you can you can sense it. So I, my clients do the, the same thing. They they highlight certain areas, they omit certain areas, they use certain verbiage and how they're interpreting something. So just like I did um, early on, you know, set the definition. I let them set the definition of the way they are using the words and that mean because that means something. So I get a sense of how they're experiencing their own world. Um, pick up on patterns. And then I kind of, I ask about their, their upbringing. And I do that because there's this other thing that is very important to trauma called ACEs or adverse childhood experiences. Have, have you ever heard of that, Melissa? Um, a little bit, but can you go into it? Yeah, sure. Of course. Of course. So adverse childhood experiences are, um, they define it as traumatic events that occur before a child reaches the age of 18. And it can consist of all kinds of things from physical um, to sexual abuse, neglect, even things such as um, a family going through a divorce or if a parent had a mental illness, um, if they were part of, say, like a welfare system of sorts, Um, substance abuse in the home. So there are all of these adverse childhood experiences that, um, you know, there was a study back in 1998, I believe it was, or 1990, by Felitti and and Kaiser Permanente, where they coined this term. And um, they found that people with, hold on, I really want to, I want to make sure I know I'll I'll find it in terms of when the study was done. But anyway, the point is they found that if a person reported four or more ACEs in their life, they had a 
four to 12 times greater chance of developing issues like substance use disorders or um, PTSD or complex trauma um, because of what they went through as as children. And I found that fascinating because wow. when it came, yeah, when it came to PTSD, uh, that, you know, that phenomenon really got a lot of attention after 9-11 and all of the soldiers coming back for more, even though PTSD has been around, you right. know what I mean, for forever. It just finally got a name. Yeah. And the question became, why do some people develop PTSD or these like complex and, and awful manifestations of trauma and others don't. Right. And, and it was based on a lot of it could be explained by how adverse their childhood was. Wow. So, you know, if a person has, and many of us, I think nobody has a perfect life, right. And especially those of us who are high achievers or, or, um, <laughs> High achievers, especially because we can hide it well, but, and those of us who are in the mental health field, it's not like we are in this field because we had like the best life ever, you know, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of us who are high achievers are often trying to kind of make up for the crap that we went through, you know? So, right. yeah. So um, in any event, when I ask my clients about their upbringing, I'm listening for these kinds of adverse experiences because it helps me understand or at least get an overview of the extent to which they might be able to deal with whatever it is that brought them into counseling in the first place. You see what I mean? Yeah. So I have to, I have to create the backdrop and the foreground of my client collaboratively, of course. And I check in all the time. I'm wrong about a lot of things. So I, you know, it's a very collaborative process. And then, so I can sense how much they're going to be able to resource their bodies to work through their traumatic experience. Yeah. Um, and so, and it's a, it can be a very, very slow process, especially when um, there's physical abuse involved because it's precisely the fact that they can't resource their bodies and regulate their physical, their physiological responses that keeps the trauma in place they yeah. can't move through it because they can't resource their bodies because they don't feel safe yeah yeah so i mean it, it could be just like you mentioned earlier melissa like okay so where do you feel that in your body and i have a client who was sexually abused her entire childhood by family strangers all in the home and she just she can't get there yeah I, you know she's we've been working together for four years and she's just now getting to the point where she might be able to identify something, but it yeah. was hard. It was really hard at first. Right. Yeah. Um, do you, um, you know, you talk about PTSD. Um, do you find that people uh, now that that's a term um, mm -hmm. use that for a lot of different things now or identify with more people identify with that or how yeah I think so and mm, it does water down this the seriousness of the disorder right and what it also does is on the front end of that those people who are using it rather loosely miss miss the fact 
that a response to seeing something awful or feeling fear and helplessness um it is a normal is a normal thing it's a if you see something awful you're going to have chances are you're going to have a reaction a negative reaction yeah so so that's very congruent you know if if i see a young girl a, a little boy or a girl or a child get hit by a car i'm going to freak out right you know I, i'm going especially if i can't help yeah will i have post traumatic stress symptomology yes of course i'm going to i'm going to cry i'm going to have flashbacks i can't sleep i can't concentrate but i'm not going to turn around and say that i have ptsd because the d comes in based on time frame yeah so there's post traumatic stress which is which is often congruent to the kind of activating event yeah. and then there's post traumatic stress disorder and that's when in in spite of time passing and attempts to no regulate the physiological response to the event um that it doesn't go away after a certain period of time mm. And what right. amount so, of time is it, does it just kind of vary? Um, well, the DSM does have a very specific uh, time frame in there. And a lot of the, um, a lot of the disorders do. Yeah. So um, typically with PTSD, it needs to last for more than a month. Oh, okay. that's. Yeah. So the somatic uh, or the physiological responses to that activating event have to be around for a month at least in order to call it a disorder because post-traumatic oh. stress, like I said, is a very congruent, healthy response to seeing something right. awful. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, when, uh, you're talking about, um, trauma, you know, trauma and stuff. Um, one thing like recently I went and saw a concussion specialist and, you know, it was really cool. Cause they actually told me, um, that I needed to start to learn how to put it behind me and let it go. Um, like, you know, instead oh. of always thinking of myself as being concussed, which I'm no longer, um, you know, attaching that to me and letting it go. Um, how, how do you think, um, people are able to hold on to something for so long? Cause I, you know, I was thinking about it. Like if somebody, for instance, has a knee injury in high school or college, and then 20 years later, they still, um, kind of favor, you know, like kind of, uh, favor that injury and make it their excuse for everything instead of trying to work through it and thinking that maybe they could actually move on and, um, be healthy again. Um, do you think people just hold on to things and don't realize that they are capable of, um, letting certain things go that might've been traumatic, but, um, at the, you know, over time it's, it can be something they've, uh, been able to heal from. 
Well, I think so the the action of getting over something, yeah, you know, can be applied to all kinds of things, whether it's an injury or a, 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 you know a fear of something or getting over a breakup or you know what right. I mean um yeah um but the act of getting over something is quite a skill yeah and if say a person in their childhood was not uh raised to push through things yeah like even the littlest like um, that's why sports are so cool, you know, uh, team sports or just being an athlete, because it teaches the person how to con like continue continuous improvement. It teaches them how to strive for that. Right. So if a person, for example, lives a cushy childhood and, and everything, every obstacle is moved out of the way, they're not learning the act of getting over something. Yeah. You know, right. and so say the person with the injured knee have they struggled in life because struggle builds strength it's like any you know muscle atrophy and then sleeping well and rest and coming back and feeling stronger like you know it's not that they i don't think anyone wants to hold on to it uh in the sense that um well no i take that back because there is this thing called learned helplessness yeah so but if if the, if the person saying your example is having a hard time getting over an injury, my question is, um, what meaning did they attach to it when it occurred? Mm. Because what happens in our past, and, and I'm kind of sad that your doctor told you to just get over it, because what happens in our past comes forward it, it plays out in our present day which is exactly what trauma does we know it's in the past but that's not the point yeah the point is that the fear the hesitation is playing out in the present yeah so so it's kind of like how do we the bridge that's drawn now in terms of the person not wanting to work through it we have to create a new bridge we have to find the original like what's the what is the meaning that the person is attaching to everything because and so sometimes we can identify that with the senses that they're if they recall the experience and they tell me about it because then there's the sensation and then we work to recreate another theme another yeah. bridge and along the way we have to encourage or, or set up situations where they can have little successes around that and build so there's like this process of building the bridge back to the present with a different way of understanding it and understanding that the that nervous feeling that say like they need to they have this really steep climb that they need to make that rather than focus and say oh my knee just kind of go okay I know what this is I know what this is about let me try and being willing to take action on that attempt yeah. because most people who don't want to let go are just, they're too afraid. And that makes, it makes complete sense. Yeah. Of course they are. Yeah. Um, and and it's, it's that training in early on in our lives is, did we learn to get over things? Right. Yeah. 
No, I think like when my doctor said that he was saying it like empathetically, like I need to mm. like let like start to let go of it and start to see myself as a healthy person versus mm -hmm. being um, like stuck in this world of the concussion. And, um, and I, I saw that as like, almost like having a little closure and like, Hey, you're, um, you're getting, you're, you're almost like 100%. And, um, that's just like one thing you're kind of holding on to. Um, that's, that's kind of how I, I guess, in, interpreted it. And, um, and it made me feel like, uh, I needed to hear that from a doctor because normally they say you need to be afraid and mm, careful true. versus he said you can stop worrying about um, like letting things like not trying things because you're afraid of like hurting yourself. Like you don't need to be afraid of that anymore. Yeah. And, and that can be helpful too. I mean, when, when you were going through your struggles with healing, um, there was a lot to be afraid of with the, I mean, we barely understand the brain as it is, you know, and the medical model does use a lot of fear because I mean, advertising Tylenol and Motrin, they still have to be like, you could die right. from taking it. And it's like, thank you. But, 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 they, but the, the, the odds of it, the, the probability of that are, is low, but they still have to say that. And yeah. a lot of, a lot of doctors, um, so I'm glad you clarified that for me because a lot of doctors don't want to, um, don't feel comfortable being optimistic because they have, they're in their minds, they're always accounting for that, you know, 0 0.001 chance that right. you're going to die from Tylenol. <laughs> you're you're going to die from, you know, uh, straining too hard because of your concussion or, or an aneurysm or, or whatever. So, yeah. um, and, and they mean well, but it does instill a lot of fear in the rest of us who don't quite understand probability in that way. Right. Yeah. So I love that, you know, and I try to encourage my clients too, when they're talking to medical doctors, that they're not medical deities, yeah. that they need to go in there armed with information and trusting their bodies again. And that's the other thing that, you know, to the, that maybe you didn't trust your body so much for right. whatever other reason that you were not as comfortable thinking of yourself as able-bodied again, at least yeah. not fully. And so, right. So it's all these, this uncovering the meaning of things and then working with the body to, to push through it. Yeah. Um, especially when it's something like trauma or an injury that, really does throw off the way your life has that you've structured it. Yeah. You know, like, um, that's a huge shift in lenses. Like you have a certain lens in your life that, that that's developed over time. And you finally got to a point where you're kind of, um, just, just doing your thing, not going through the motions, but making things happen. And you're used to working out, you're used to doing presentations. And then all of a sudden it's, there's this thing that happens that requires a person to completely shift their lenses and have to understand a new way of seeing the world and being in it. Yeah. And then you do that because you're in, you're in the process of healing 
and you're healing over you're you're getting better um which implies that something really bad happened and so that becomes the focus and so what happens often is that becomes our new lenses and so as we look through them we tend to want to pick up only what's familiar yeah. which is the fear the pain the struggle how you had to change everything so we can't see what the lenses we can't see through the lenses we once had there's a yeah. huge shift and because it deals with fear one of our very natural um emotions and focuses is to be feel safe so fear is a very necessary component to our psychology because it's what keeps us safe but if you've gone through something traumatic and your whole world changed because of it so do your lenses and of course you're going to just be very hyper vigilant about things yeah so your your knee the the head injury but the problem is is once things resolve we don't tend to adjust because of how our lives were were so steeped in fear we don't tend to adjust to the new circumstances because we're afraid and we want to yeah. stay safe so we can't pick up on the other things that are telling us it's okay we only want to focus on what's familiar yeah what makes us feel safe which is all the bad stuff right so do you have to then kind of retrain yourself to wear the the new lens that yes, teaches you, you that you're safe yes and it takes time um i wish i could somehow um show this on a podcast but i found this really cool tool that looked at the entire color spectrum which i really liked um it was, i actually found it at on the university of colorado at boulder site for physics students oh, talking okay. about uh, yeah it was really neat it was talking about color and there's this little platform where there's this lady um and she's looking through a lens and i made the lens red and what's interesting is i is it was when i shine the like a, a light bulb through the lens um i can also adjust the color of the light bulb and the only thing that would come through the red lens were the red were the red lights mm. so if i moved it slightly you know to make it say reddish orange some would come through because of the red but if i made it you know green she couldn't see anything right yeah so like i said picking up on the familiar yeah and so the person then has to be willing to say okay maybe if i shift my lens a little bit so if i changed her lens to say bluish green and i started to move the light bulb color towards that shade you could start seeing the rays of light coming through the the lenses so yes the person has to kind of work to shift their lens to the situation at hand but like i said with trauma and because it's steeped in fear and our, our and the need for us to feel safe we often don't want to adjust to the new circumstances because it doesn't feel safe right and i liked i liked that platform too because it focused on the senses first that yeah. again we see we hear taste touch smell it was the sense it had nothing to do with well the way i do it i show cognition first but like just the notion that she was only going to pick up on what's familiar um and in the beginning of that i was talking about aces so like in the 
in the scene before that, I was showing that all of her traumatic experiences made her thoughts red. Like if if the if the trauma represented red light, and that's all she was experiencing, her thought bubble would turn red. Yeah. So now her thought bubble turned into her lens, and she could only pick up on what's familiar. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 What I wanted to mention about the whole PTSD and the military thing that I found fascinating was going back to the question of why do some people develop PTSD and why others don't. What was interesting was a lot of the combat soldiers, the ones who were on the front lines or in active war, a lot of them developed PTSD, yes, but a lot of them didn't. Hmm. The ones who were showing PTSD were like the support personnel. Oh. Uh, Yeah. The people who were, say, setting up the communications or setting up like the tents or doing the, the HR work. Right. And, and here's why early on, um, those support personnel were not getting training on like combat or protecting themselves. That was for the people who were going out and physically fighting. So what they found was it was the training for those, you know, protecting themselves, that was the the mitigator of developing PTSD. Wow. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. Because, the, yeah, the support personnel weren't getting it. So they're just freaking out there all helpless, you know what I'm saying? And they're just like, ah. That's why they were more susceptible to the PTSD. It's like, huh. help me figure out how to protect myself. Help me learn mm-hmm. how to get over or um push through something yeah and it was like you would think like no shit but that's when the light bulb came on for a lot of the military it's like oh my god we got to train everyone on combat or at least on some level because otherwise we're just gonna have all these people with ptsd running around because the large majority of a war effort is the support yeah and not just the people going out there So to me, that kind of goes back to the ACEs in our childhood. It's like, or or just childhood in general, you know, learning and letting children struggle and getting them to get over things like that is so necessary. On the the other hand, though, if they're constantly being hit with abuse and, and neglect and, you know, not feeling safe when they go to school because of school shootings and mass shootings, that all takes a toll on that feeling of helplessness. And so then when we grow up and we're adults and we have some awful thing that happens to us, the question becomes, what did I learn early on in life? And am I going to be able to push through this very awful event? And right. that that's, that's where what is traumatic to you, Melissa, may not be traumatic to me or vice versa. Right. Yeah. So trauma is a a beast and trauma can encompass all kinds of things and is very specific to the individual who experienced it for all kinds of reasons. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, I know you work a lot with like high schoolers and, um, Mm -hmm. how, how do you think, um, there's a difference between like the, the high school brain versus, you know, the adult brain when dealing with, um, certain situations. Ugh. (laughs) you know so I think many of us recognize that 
development moves rapidly, especially when we're like itty bitty, you know, like the difference between a three month old and a seven, seven month old is huge. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And um, very impressionable and all of that. And then right around seven or so, like that kind of slows down and they're kind of sweet and they're nice and they just want to please the parent and, you know, and it kind of goes in this dormant phase and it, it almost is like they fo- the body's focusing on more extending and expanding because they're growing, you know, yeah, uh, bones and whatnot. Not that the mind isn't online, but the prefrontal cortex is kind of chilling at that point. When adolescence hits, <laughs> hormones do a thing where it's like, oh, crap, we, we're going to be like, we're going to be able to reproduce soon. We need to wake up. <laughs> and then <laughs> all of these hormones rush in and the brain starts short circuiting. So that prefrontal cortex, is, which is where researchers believe we make our executive decisions, you know, where all of our executive functioning or most of it is housed, it is short circusing synapses are firing half ass, some are not some are like too much. And (laughs) it is just a hot mess. My, um, I tell my son who's 14 right now, who just I swear is verging on like mutism. I'm talking like flat affect, no expression, right? Talk much. I'm like, dude, (laughs) Where are you? And I'm like, son, your brain is being held hostage by hormones. I know you're in there somewhere. I know you can hear me, son, but it's just so much is happening in there <laughs> that it is like pulling teeth with some, especially, well, no, all teenagers. And, but what's interesting is that even though they don't respond sometimes when I'm talking, yeah, they're, they're listening. Hmm. It's fascinating because I'll hear later, I'll get a report like, yeah, what you said made a huge difference in my son or daughter. I'm like, holy shit, they were listening to me. Um, I wouldn't know because right. they don't <laughs> respond. I have no idea. Whereas the, whereas an adult, um, with them, it's more about, it's kind of like a dance with adults because they they tend to have a way of understanding their world and themselves. Yeah. So I have to kind of, battle with them a little bit in breaking down the chain of reasoning they already have that's kept them productive in their adult life. Right. So whereas the teenagers, I can, they're more open to taking on new ways of, of understanding themselves in the world because adolescence is one existential crisis anyway, (laughs) you know, they're just kind of, they're open to new ideas and like, why does anything matter? And, you know, where the adult is already like, okay, I made my decisions on how the world works. Um, prove me wrong. Right. You know, and I, ha- <laughs> and I, have to, I have to like almost be like an attorney with some of them in the sense that I have to get to their logic chain and find the weak points. Yeah. And then they go, oh, Okay, but because they want to stick with what's familiar and they'll fight me on it, and yeah. which is fine, which is totally fine because at the end of the day, they are the experts, you know, and so, but with the therapeutic relationship developing over time, they start to trust me, they start to trust, you know, some suggestions or ideas, so they try them out, 
And then they start to trust themselves. Yeah. And then, then I go away, which is, which is the goal. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, with the adults, it's kind of like a chess match with teenagers. It's kind of like, it's, I I don't even know. It's like, (laughs) it's just a hot mess. Yeah. (laughs) It's like looking at my closet and going, I know there's an outfit in here somewhere. (laughs) Right. We just try to figure this out. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I like them both though. I really do. I really do. Whereas like teen teenagers are like all this nihilism, like nothing matters and uh everything is so serious. And I have to be very careful not to minimize that because it yeah. is all serious to them. And then adults, it's it's a lot of why does anything matter? Because they've they they feel like they've tried it all, so to speak. Right. And nothing's working, but they don't recognize that their range, their color range, only stayed between like blue and green. Yeah. That's what they felt safe with. So yeah. my job is I try to bring in other colors saying, you have this whole spectrum to try. Right. It's not just black, white, and gray. Yeah. Screw that. You have this whole color spectrum and every shade and hue and boldness and pastel and whatever to textures to try. And so then it's a matter of helping them safely try on these different lenses and say, okay, let me see what fits now. I love that. Yeah. I think you're really good at that too. Like I remember the one thing that I was struggling with was I felt like I was just constantly battling with my um, seven-year-old and, and like, you're just like, read this book. Like, did you even know there's like little kids have hormones? And I'm like, no, like I didn't even know. And so instead of now having the lens of she's having a fit and it's, you know, disruptive, it's more like, oh, well, that's just normal. You know, now I have the lens of she's Mm -hmm. having a normal reaction. Why, why do I need to react? Um, and or it's, it's it's adjusting your reaction to maybe soothing versus you yeah. know disciplining or yeah exactly yeah, yeah i think yeah. it's it's really interesting um and i feel like we're always constantly yeah stuck in our in our ways our and lens. our lens that we and our and our colors our, our color like range yeah tends to be like limited yeah and we just don't know until someone points it out and is that I mean I would think that would be why you would want to see a professional counselor like you um to to have that um pointed out to you so you know like oh this is this is how I'm seeing things um like an example for instance is I was talking to somebody about counseling and they were like, well, I, you know, I'm never going to do counseling because I don't want to talk about a certain person. Cause that's the person who bothers me all the time. And, um, and in my head, I was thinking, well, it's not really about that other person. It's about you and how you're, mm-hmm. you know, seeing things like, that's what I learned a lot from it. Yeah. It's, our interpretation to an external stimuli. Like I yeah. said, that person might bother me and you're like, what's the problem? Right. Clearly <laughs> the person's the same. Yeah. It's you and I who are different in interpretation of right. the 
experience of that person. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it's not like, I'm not saying that therefore I get along with everybody. There are some people who I just think are straight up dirtball raggedy and I don't want to be around them. Oh, you're allowed. You know what I mean? But, right. but it's more like just recognizing that it doesn't have to apply to everything in the world or your whole situation. Right. It's circumstantial. Again, even with trauma and seeing how trauma presents it's, trauma occurs in the present, like it, the ex reliving it over and over. It's about the difficulty of adjusting to the new set of circumstances. That's the battle. Yeah. You know, because the trauma is in the past, the, 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 uh, or the um, experience. Well, no, let me rephrase that. The event is in the past. Yeah. But the experience of trauma happens in the present over mm. and over again, even though the event is no longer there. Yeah. So it's learning how to feel safe in adjusting to the new set of circumstances. Right. And feeling, yeah, yeah. Feeling safe is, is key. Right. Very much key. Yeah. Wow. And by the way, that Felitti study was in 1998. So yeah, it was really, it was a really good study and it, people have built on top of that a lot a lot of research has been built on top of that that one study it was it was amazing it's good stuff wow <laughs> mm -hmm. um is there anything else that you wanted to talk about um that we didn't cover yet i think um kind of some some tools to to try out or or chew on as it relates to getting over or working through trauma. Yeah. So like I said, trauma, um, healing from trauma or what they call post-traumatic resilience can be, can be, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not, not hurried along. Cause you don't want to do that but more like using the body, working with the body can help enrich in the process of healing. Yeah. Talk therapy will only work for, you know, some things and will only go so far. Right. When we, when we use the body, which is where a lot of the bad, where our, our, our experiences live. Yeah. Um, it can really just in, like I said, it just makes the, the process of healing so much more substantial and deeper. So you'll, a lot of people will read that yoga really does help work through PTSD symptomology because it gets the person back into their body. But I hate yoga. <laughs> I absolutely hate yoga. Um, so one of the things I try to tell my clients is like, don't try pop culture suggestions just because everyone's saying it's a thing. Like you're right. not going to catch me meditating either. You're just <laughs> not, I am not going to go outside and garden. I'm allergic to earth. You know what I mean? So I'm not going out there and walking through the forest either. So all of these things that this kind of big wave of this, like, oh, mindfulness and this, I'm like, you know what? That doesn't work for me. Yeah, it just so it's coming to know the self is really important. And what what works for you? Right. Being open to try. I mean, I did try it. And that's how I know I don't like it. And I yeah. tried it multiple times. What I do like, though, is Pilates. 
Yeah. Love Pilates. So I found my, cause I like to lift, but like lifting just kind of made me more angry. Cause I mean, you know, you gotta be angry when you're lifting. I'm like, okay, this is reinforcing my issue. This is not good. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I had, I found this nice middle, yeah. you know, but I stayed, I stayed on the search and I was using, and, and I do like to work out. So, um, yeah, the Pilates thing, I just absolutely love. I think my bottom line is find a way to work with your body. Right. When it comes to traumatic experiences and, um, and, and don't just go based on pop culture suggestions right. because it just doesn't work for everyone, me included. Yeah. So, yeah, yep. that's for sure. Um, also I think depending on the generation too, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, me trying to give advice to my parents, <laughs> You know, the stuff I enjoy isn't necessarily what work what what they enjoy. And right. Yeah. So Yeah. And and um I would say all also um we all know about reframing our thoughts and that's fine. It's more cognitive kind of stuff. But finding ways to build self-efficacy. So self-efficacy being defined as like one's um, belief in their abilities or their capabilities to produce a, a given outcome. Right. You know, like, can I do this? Work on small steps towards success. Like, yeah. don't, don't focus. Some of the things I tell my athletes, is like, don't focus on first place at the podium. Right. You know, you need to focus on, did you sleep enough? Did you eat well? Are you well hydrated? When you are, when your feet are in the blocks before you come out and you've got to jump those hurdles, are your feet placed properly? Are you taking the number of steps? I mean, it is literally like a, like very small process oriented, technique oriented tasks that if, and when they succeed, that's like, okay, good. I, I did that. I can do this. So it's a build up to a lot of times when they focus on, say the end goal, or like even an academic, like thinking the end goal of dissertation, it can feel way too overwhelming. Right. So rather than say, I can imagine walking through a heavy rainstorm and I've got to walk, you know, I don't know, a mile. There's no point of me looking through this heavy rain, trying to see (laughs) the end of the mile. Right. So I put my equipment or put my, my clothes on or whatever, get my stuff and I keep my head down. And if I have this line, this path, all I need to, that I know is going to take me to my end goal, all I need to do is keep my head down and focus on one step after the other. And then eventually I'll get there. Yeah. So, and, and, and recognizing, and sometimes looking back going, dang, look at all I did and not minimizing the small accomplishments. Right. So building self-efficacy versus just having confidence, you know? Confidence is just kind of like, yeah, I'm awesome. Or yeah, I'm smart. It's like, that's great. But, you know, so you're a bad, you're a badass in your sport. Well, prove it. Yeah. You know, the person with self-efficacy is going to probably do a lot better than somebody who's just has high self-esteem. Cause there's a lot of lazy people with high self-esteem. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> So yeah, self-efficacy, I would say too, is building upon that to help work through some, some tough things like trauma. Yeah. Wow. So so you have a belief in yourself again. Yeah. 
That's awesome. <laughs> hey, well, I'm glad you think so. Um, wow. Well, um, thank you, Tridia, so much for talking. And um, yeah, I feel like that was really, really helpful. And it reminds me too about like when I was in the middle of dealing with my hardest times, you know, I felt like I had to do that, like put one foot in front of the other and, um, and, and believe, you know, it was going to work out and it, um, I feel like it, in the end, it, it was worth it and taught me a lot. So that's awesome. Yep. And that's just, that's, that's life. And, um, yeah, your, your kids are lucky. They have a good mama. <laughs> they really um, do. Wow. Well, thank you so much. And I, um, yeah, it's really good talking with you again. Likewise. And thanks for listening, y'all. You guys are an awesome audience, I'm sure. Melissa, she does well. She does great things. So uh, it's, a, it's an honor for to know that some people are actually listening to what I have to say. So thank you very much. (laughs) Thanks again for listening to this episode today. I hope you enjoyed it. And remember, this episode is just meant for educational purposes only. This is not intended to replace professional advice from a doctor, therapist, or other professional. If you need help, make sure to reach out and get the help that you need. Again, I'm always rooting for you. Take it easy and we'll talk to you next time.